Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I have with me today two of my friends who love to talk about America and love to talk about liberty. And we often have this conversation, at least I have this conversation in my head with the two of them. What would Mike and Matthew say about this? (laughs) So I'm having them on to talk about this internal struggle I have as a libertarian Christian about the American Revolution. And the reason that I have this tension is because as every good conservative boy grew up loving his country, and believing that everything his country did was probably pretty good, especially if you were an American. It was. Um, oh, sorry. That was... <laughs> sorry. Matthew's already jumping in to, yes, amen. <laughs> uh, I have to sort of shed some of those emotional, sympathetic, I don't know, manifestations when I'm at a 4th of July party or something along those lines. And so becoming a libertarian was a bit of a transition for me because it made me question whether or not I could love my country. It made me question whether or not the American Revolution was actually legitimate. It made me wonder, hmm, maybe there are peaceful means to doing things like maybe Canada seceding from France. So all kinds of questions regarding whether or not a libertarian Christian who believes in the authority of the Bible and believes that Romans 13 has something to teach us about authorities and how we relate to authorities. There's a lot of questions about what do we make of the American Revolution? And so in my internal dialogue that I often have with Matt and Mike, they don't know this, but they always give me all the right answers. So I figured I would just get them out of my head and into the podcast studio, as it were, so that they could give you, the listener, all of the right answers about the American Revolution. Mike, Matt, thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. We're doing this just in time for the 4th of July. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're doing it just in time for some 4th of July. (laughs) We're just doing it way, way ahead. Way, way ahead, yes. <laughs> or maybe if this goes really poorly, I'll just hold on to it and we'll just release it on the 4th of July as a bonus episode. No, I'm kidding. No, you guys are really important friends of mine in this way because I think you both represent a certain way of thinking about the American Constitution and our founding that is important to my development and growth. And so when I asked you on... I really do want to talk about this from a libertarian Christian perspective and just get a sense from each of you. How do you understand and process what happened during the American Revolution? And if you were a Christian living back then, how would you have processed it? Those kinds of questions just kind of ring true. Share with us just a little bit, Mike, I'll start with you. If you want to share with us a little bit, just how you perceive just in general, the American Revolution, and then we'll, I'll switch over to Matt. I'm not sure how much help I'm going to be because I'm a little bit schizophrenic on it too. I can very much relate to what you're saying, Doug, in terms of kind of that tension between my faith. It's really my view of war that I struggle with in terms of looking at the American Revolution or any war at all. But I also do understand that the affinity for kind of those founding principles and and the things that we're told that America is supposed to stand for. So I I feel that tension as well. Mm. And it's interesting. I'm going to read something to kind of set this up. And this is, John Adams wrote this, and it was a letter to Hezekiah Niles, who I believe was a pastor. And he kind of 
broke the American Revolution into kind of two different things. One being the war itself, but before that, the revolution in thought that kind of laid the groundwork for the war. And this is what he said. He said, what do we mean by the American Revolution? Do we mean the American War? The revolution was affected before the war commenced. The revolution was in the minds and hearts of the people, a change in their religious sentiments of their duties and obligations. This radical change in the principles, opinions, sentiments, and affections of the people was the real American Revolution. I have a great deal of affinity and I think this was generally a good thing, this revolution in thought. So what was he talking about? He was talking about, first off, the idea that government is not sovereign over the people. The people are actually sovereign over the government. And that was something that was a radical idea that came from writers like John Locke. They came from Algernon Sidney. I think I said his first name wrong, who actually was executed for writing very similarly to John Locke and for basically saying that Kings don't have any legitimate right to rule over us, you know, in any kind of moral or ethical sense. It was the idea that, you know, the British had a constitution. A lot of people don't really know that, but they did have a constitution. It was an unwritten constitution. But the biggest right that the American colonists had was that the parliament was not respecting the constitutional tradition, particularly when it came to self-rule. It had been established long before that colonies, as far as taxation and local control, that would be handled through their local colonial legislative bodies. That was the whole idea of taxation without representation. It wasn't even so much about the taxes. It was just the fact that they didn't believe that the parliament had the right to override their local governance. So these were very radical things because in the British mind, parliament was sovereign. Parliament got to make the rules. Parliament asserted that, hey, we're doing this. So when you look at the foundation that was laid from a philosophical, political standpoint, it was a huge radical revolution in thought. And I think that revolution in thought was a net gain for the world. I think it was a step toward a more liberal society, and I mean liberal in the libertarian sense, where mm-hmm. we're the controllers of government. And this was radical. And then you see people like Thomas Jefferson taking a step later in his life, even talking about the idea that, hey, maybe this constitution thing shouldn't bind future generations, that each generation should make its own decision. So they were on the, a very libertarian track, someplace that I would go down. That all said, I have a big struggle with the war, and it's more of a general struggle. I, I still have the hoorah, America, yay kind of thing because that's what I was raised with. But in my heart of hearts and in my mind, I don't think you're ever going to get true liberty and freedom through a violent revolution because you are establishing the new thing on top of the primary philosophical bedrock of the old thing, and that's violence, force, and coercion. And I think if you lay the government on the foundation of violence, force, and coercion, you're going to end up with more violence, force, and coercion. And that's exactly what we have. And I look back at the history and, you know, we look at the American Revolution and we're free, yay. And you mentioned Canada. Canada is every bit as free as the United States without a bloody war. So I can't really sit here and say that that war and the killing that was involved in it was justified, especially as a Christian. And this comes from my position that isn't quite pacifism, but is darn close to it. I'm not an individual pacifist, so if somebody physically assaults me, I'm going to do what I have to do to end that physical assault. I would use violence in that. But 
as a Christian and as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, the United States isn't really my kingdom. And I don't feel like I have any place to get into another kingdom's wars. Let it play out how it's going to play out. So from that standpoint, I'd probably be a Quaker. I'd be like, this is cool from the philosophical standpoints, but I'm not picking up a gun. Mm. So that's kind of where I am. And, and maybe that's yeah. a little bit schizophrenic, but... No, I think it has a coherent sense of thought. I mean, the impulse to reject the idea of a war, but also embrace the, for lack of a better word, ideology or principles of freedom. I don't think those are schizophrenic at all. Right. Matthew, did you grow up in a similar environment that Mike and I did where we were like, rah, rah, America, and it's tempered now? Or like, where do you stand on your views on the American Revolution? Yeah, it was the 80s. It was a uh, time <laughs> of Ronald Reagan and America is in its morning time again. And, city on uh, a hill, right? City on a hill. We are, <laughs> we're going to rediscover the beauty of America. And frankly, I actually thank God for that time period because there was a growing cynicism in the U.S. that I think could have led to some disastrous policies in the end. However, that being said, growing up, my view of the American Revolution is tempered by, I would like to think, a, at least a correct view of history. And to kind of look back on it now with all of the information that I have is to kind of ascribe a level of bigotry that I think is due to our founding fathers because they were working with a completely different set of parameters and inputs and things that they didn't quite know about them. Mm. To many of them, the biggest scourge on human existence was slavery. I know that may be a shock to some people who constantly see the founding fathers as just slave-owning white men, but a lot of them had internal spiritual struggles with it. And there were others who thought that the uh, biggest pressing issue was colonialism itself and the king's rule from over the seas. So they have a lot of different inputs that they were having to deal with. And I was always trying to put myself in their mindset. And I'm glad what Mike was actually saying because they were dealing with some brand new thoughts and ideas that were springing from Locke and from others that I even think goes back even further than just that, all the way back to, I think, the Reformation. Because that was really the beginning point to say, wait a second, I don't have to follow lockstep what the Catholic Church says. And, you know, I can mm -hmm, mm -hmm. question my sovereign king as an individual was they saw themselves, the individual man saw themselves as the vassal of their Lord and their Lord was a representative of the king and the king was instilled by God. So who am I to question that, you know? Mm, and yeah. the Reformation and a lot of the thoughts that came out of that said, no, you are an image bearer of God. You have just as much worth, just as much value, and just as much right to be here on this planet as the king or queen does, to which many lost their heads over that type of mm. questioning authority, yeah. quite literally. Uh, that's why she was called Bloody Mary. So anyhow, thinking about it from a Reformation standpoint, there was a lot of work that was done that was rather bold by our founding fathers to say that questioning the king on his activities in the colony was not just wrong legally, but it was wrong morally and spiritually. And a lot of the people that 
built that groundwork in the colonies themselves were people like George Whitfield and others of the Black Road Regiment who actually fought and said, yeah, he's acting outside of the God-given authority that he has as your duly appointed leader. And this is where you get the positions of the lower magistrate in thought. But he's acting outside of that bounds, and we cannot in good conscience have the moral foundation to follow what the king says because he is causing us to sin by doing what he says. So we need to separate ourselves from this king and make ourselves an independent nation, to which that became a war, and I would say primarily a war of defense rather than a war of offense. They made the declaration, and then the king pushed back. And the moral positioning of the righteousness of the American Revolution was laid by preachers themselves. It was called the Presbyterian Rebellion in England for a reason, because it was a bunch of Hmm. Presbyterian ministers who laid that moral foundation. Mike, I want to ask you what you think of Matthew's statement there about it being a war of defense. I've actually... Maybe I have heard it posed that way, but I haven't heard it posed that way recently or haven't even conceptualized it that way. Do you understand it as a defensive war or a defensive posture for the American revolutionaries to have taken? Probably from a military standpoint, if you look at it from purely tactical military standpoint, I would say that that's probably a fair evaluation. And the entire situation was a ratcheting up of push and counter push that ultimately ended up in shooting. So you go all the way back to Mm. the Stamp Act, which was really, I mean, we were seeing the ripples underneath even before that, but the Stamp Act is where things really came to a head. Which was far more egregious than the T-Tax Act. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the interesting thing about the Stamp Act is that the British government was never able to enforce it because there was so much resistance from the colonists themselves. And it was a lot like of COVID, that, right? Like yeah. they just didn't enforce it. Oh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> All the resistance. <laughs> a lot of that resistance was nonviolent. You had resolutions. You had a refusal to use the stamp paper. I think a lot of that resistance crossed the line where there were literally mob actions against folks. And if somebody was known to be a stamp commissioner or had received that assignment, they would burn their houses down. They would chase them down the street as mobs. They would run them out of town. And as a person who's generally, again, I I try to take the nonviolent route, you can start to debate whether those were appropriate steps or not. It's hard for me to say. And I think one point that Matthew made that I think is really, really good is that you have got to put any historical people in their time and place. And too often we try to to impose 21st century moral standards on people that were living two, 300 years ago, and it's absurd. Even, you know, Matthew mentioned slavery. That was something that we look at today, how could you possibly support slavery? Well, in the 1700s, everybody supported slavery. So you can't take people out of their context. So I'm not going to judge those colonists and those people in the in mid-1700s for the way that they viewed things and the way they handled things. But 
All of that to circle back to actually answer the question. I, again, I think from a military standpoint, it was definitely a defensive war. You could make the argument that they knew that actually making that declaration of independence would result in war. In fact, there had already been shooting before that. And it's interesting because if you go back and look at the First Continental Congress, it was not a foregone conclusion that they were going to go for independence. There were a lot of people that were of the mind that we want to push, but we want to stay within this system. We just want them to observe their constitutional duty as parliament. And then when it became clear they weren't going to do that, then then the fireworks went off. But um, I would say that, yes, it was defensive in a tactical sense. I'm not sure that as a Christian, it would justify it and make it a godly or a good thing from a moral ethical sense. Matthew, do you have any follow-up comments on that? Well, actually, I'm I'm glad that Mike originally put himself in the correct historical position of a Quaker because there were many (laughs) Quakers who actually had things to say about the revolution and their actions in it and the position that they were taking. A lot of the Quakers were seen as, at that time, British patriots because they wouldn't engage in the war. Mm. However, a lot of them spoke in acceptance and approved of the newly founded country. So the Quakers weren't a monolith of thought. There were Quakers on both sides who had ideals, but none of them would (laughs) pick up a flippant gun. Uh, (laughs) But you know what? Bless their pacifist hearts. (laughs) Well, John Dickinson, who is often called the penman of the revolution, Mm -hmm. he wasn't really Quaker, but he came from that background. Right. And he was one of the folks who was most reluctant to sign the Declaration of Independence to go that route because he was trying to look for that peaceful mm-hmm. resolution to the crisis. But interestingly, when push came to shove, he did pick up a gun. So some of them even <laughs> did that. I am reminded of something that Benjamin Franklin said. He said of something to the effect of all the men that I could persuade, John Dickinson wasn't one of them, or something to that effect. Because he was just such an ardent man of his conviction that he had to really be backed into a corner to even support the idea of independence. So yeah, Mm. very, very interesting historical character himself. Well, it seems like the three of us would agree. I mean, I haven't weighed in in particular, but I would kind of affirm both of your perspectives there that the revolution that we consider as the fight against the king or the fight against the crown or however we want to put it, there was probably better options, right? There could have been more peaceful means of doing it had there been more patience and so forth, and that we can challenge a Christian's choice to take up arms. I think, Matt, you might be a little bit more willing to pick up a gun than Mike and I might (laughs) be able to if like something, I don't know. You are fearsome in your own way without a gun, so maybe you (laughs) won't ever need to, and I will. I'll be like, Matt, can I have your gun? You're you're bigger than me. Um, (laughs) If we're ever threatened together, I will stand behind you with your gun or whatever. But in any case... (laughs) It does seem, though, that the revolution of thought in the hearts and minds, Mike, that you were saying that John Adams wrote about, is in some ways, what is the challenge in a lot of Christians' minds? Because you have the passage of Romans 13 sort of hovering over all political conversation for Christians because it says, you know, to submit to the governing authorities. And Mike, you were talking about how the revolution with John Adams, was revolution of the mind, and they were rethinking what sort of authority there is. And I think I would look at that and say, oh, 
they aren't rethinking that there shouldn't be authority or they aren't rethinking that there isn't divine authorized authority as such. But that authority is not simply vested in the king because he happens to be the king or in parliament or, or wherever it might be. And that there is a new way of thinking about how is authority vested right. in a particular person or is it in a document like the Constitution? I mean, I know there's that view of people who say, well, Romans 13 is true, but you know, we should submit to authorities, but our authority in America is the Constitution. And that's what some people would say. I think that is really, if you oversimplify possibly, but if you really dig down to the root of the colonial argument, that was it. Their assertion was that anything that was outside of the Constitution, and again, it was unwritten, so it was a little bit more nebulous, which honestly is the well, entire that's part reason. Of the problem. Yeah. Right. That's the entire reason that we have a written Constitution is because they look back. Well, and, it's a good thing and it's so clear now and no one disagrees <laughs> yeah, on the interpretations, exactly. right? <laughs> well, and I think that tells you a little bit something about the nature of government, yes. that yeah. no matter what revolution you have, you're going to end up with this same problem. Yeah. But that yeah. was their assertion, that anything that Parliament did that was outside of that constitutional realm or was changing the rules in the middle of the game, which is essentially what Parliament was doing, they literally said it is void and of no force. So their argument was that there's no authority here. And so therefore, we're not going to do it. And so then you ended up in a situation ultimately that the British said, oh, yes, you are going to do it or we're going to shoot you. <laughs> and so, mm. so as a Christian, I'm much more of the Rosa Parks view. I'm not going to do that thing that is unjust or immoral or outside of what I think is legitimate authority but I'm not going to punch the bus driver when he comes and tries to tell me to get out of the seat or I'm not going to punch the cop when he tries to take me to jail. That's how I read the authorities, not do what they say, but I'm not going to physically rebel against mm. them. Yeah. But then what if the bus driver comes to the back of the bus, takes your child from your arms and holds a knife up to his throat? Well, are you doing hypothetical it. or is that what happens? <laughs> <laughs> well, what I'm basically saying is hypothetically, that's what happened in the issue of the revolution was that a lot of these guys said, yeah, we don't want to fight. We know it's kind of picking a fight, but it's going to be up to the king for his response to see where this goes. And the king chose, he woke up and chose violence. And so putting British troops in the colony and oppressing the colony at that time really did put a lot of people in the position of they're coming after me, my family, my farm, my friends, my church, they're coming after my community and I better do something now or else I'm going to be standing up there with my child in the arms of a red coat with a bayonet up to his neck. So that's a little bit of a fear-mongering tactic, but hey, in the end, it happened. Mm. Right. That's kind of the position that we got to. Let's be fair. By the same token, the colonists were doing the same thing to people they perceived as loyalists. Well, true. Well, that, yeah. that may be true, but the, <laughs> so, the, the question is, what would you do? I mean, again, for some reason, my childhood mind is picturing Mel Gibson in the movie The Patriot, where he has to be confronted with... red coats with the American... Well, <laughs> yeah. Right. Which well, no, totally like, he happened. was in that... He was, you're right. He was in that situation where his son was shot by the red coat, by the, I don't know, the rank that the guy was. True. Because he was a pacifist otherwise. And then he became this murderous SOB. As a Christian, my view is it's not my place to get involved in the wars between other kingdoms. So if some goon came and literally put a bayonet to my child's throat, I'm going to try to defend my child. 
but I'm not going to go join the army and try to defend the United States. Because as far as I'm concerned, whether I'm ruled by the English version of Babylon or the Russian version of Babylon or the Chinese version of Babylon mm. really is irrelevant to me as a Christian. Mm. So that's where I draw the distinction. If I am physically threatened in and of myself, I'm going to take up arms and fight, but I'm not going to take up arms and fight over a political. So if they come to my house and try to take me to the internment camp, I'm probably going to go out shooting. Yeah. But I'm not going to go and join the army or you know go to Ukraine and fight Russians or whatever it is. Yeah, that, yeah. And that's just me. I'm not going to judge if somebody has a different, it's not something that I think is black and white. That's my, where my conscience is on it. Yeah. Hi, this is Gregory Vouse. And this is Carrie Baldwin. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may want to check out the other shows in the Christians for Liberty Network, such as the Reformed Libertarians podcast hosted by me and Carrie. We educate and inspire listeners to embrace and promote libertarianism as grounded in the Reformed faith. The Christians for Liberty Network is dedicated to offering a variety of content you love, like what you're hearing in this very episode. So now back to the show, and then be sure to check out reformedlibertarians.com. Do either of you know the percentage, roughly, of the colonists who were in favor of secession or fighting the British crown? Or was this just like there was enough people fighting and there was... At what point of the conflict? Because it, yeah. it definitely varied. I wasn't thinking more specific. I was thinking a little bit more like as it escalated into an all-out war. Okay, so we're talking like... I don't have years in mind. Yeah, so I do know that in the first part of the 1770s, the support for independence was rather vocal but not necessarily pushed with a lot of, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to put money behind it. We're going to put lives behind it. Theoretically put, behind it, yeah. We're theoretically behind it. And then when push yeah. came to shove, it's, oh gosh, are we actually going to do this? So at one point, the position for independence had support that some historians would say was down probably by like 10% mm. at like probably the beginning of the war when George Washington kept losing. <laughs> Right. Losing's not good for polls. Yeah, right. But as the war (laughs) progressed, then the position for independence became more accepted and fought for. But yeah, there were times where the idea of independence became very unattractive by when it came to, you know, the push came to shove type thing. And like you said, constitutions are black and white, just like war. People are going to have varying and different reasons for getting to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. where some saw it as a good and righteous fight. Others were just, hey, I'm here to kill Brits. You know, these guys were, right. were jerks to me. They took my oyster shucking business. And so I'm just ready to get some revenge. You know, mm. yeah. they're fighting along the same side of the guy that's saying, for my God and for all goodness and righteousness, I will defend my family and farm. Right. They're on the same side. Yeah. And I think it depends on, you know, a lot of that probably depended on where you were. I'm sure that folks in Boston who were much more under the heel of the, of the British government, who were having their businesses shut down, having soldiers quartered in their houses and being abused mm. by British troops and having their livelihoods stolen. I'm sure that they were much more supportive of throwing that off by any means necessary than somebody in, say, Western Virginia who had zero contact with yeah. the British. You know, So having the boot on your neck is certainly a motivator and 
for all of my principled pacifism, I don't know how I would respond if I was being actively oppressed. Well, so, Mike, I do hmm. appreciate your positioning on the idea of it because you even said that people are going to have differing views as to why they would or would not be a part of it. And as a Christian, right. this kind of goes to a little bit of the heart of the matter. Are we going to separate as communal brothers over the idea of war? And it seems to me, from what I'm hearing from you, you would say no. I don't understand the question. Communal that, brothers. Let's just say that you and I are a part of the same church in upstate New England. And I say, hey, they're going to burn my barn down if I don't go and fight them now. And you say, well, I'll wait until they come for my barn and then I may fight, but I'm not joining the Revolutionary Guard. Mm -hmm. We would still be able to be in the same church parish together without coming to blows because I may decide to pick up arms and you don't. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just my nature. I, I, I can't be your conscience, yeah. right? I can have my ideas about what I think you should do, but it's not my place to judge you, especially in situations where when it comes to things like the issue of violence, I think it is fair to look at the scripture and come down in a variety. You know, there's a, it's not here at this point, there's a, a range of things that I think you could conclude from outright pacifism to just war theory. I think all of those things could be upheld and justified. So I'm not here to judge anybody's position. And again, I don't know how I would respond in any hypothetical situation until you put sure. me in it. I try to look at the way the early church handled Roman persecution. And I mean, I guess you could argue that the reason that they didn't rebel in a violent way is they didn't have the numbers or the ability to do so. Mm -hmm. But I think there's something powerful in the idea of martyrdom. And I remember not too long ago, I mean, by that, I mean, within the last five or six years, there was an incident in the Middle East where this was during the ISIS, kind of the height of the ISIS period. And they came into, I believe it was a Syrian church and basically mm. wiped out the church. Yeah. And the priest was either not there. I, I can't remember the circumstances, but he actually preached a sermon in his broken up church about how we have to love these people. Mm. And so that's the model. Wow. That's the ideal that I would strive for now. Yeah. Would I, would I live that out in real life? <laughs> so I want to ask a question that, of course, you know, in hindsight, you have the ability of reflection because we're sitting here in our comfy offices using, using an online product to help us communicate with each other. We can see each other. We can enjoy time together and actually entertain these kinds of questions. And so I realize that... We're literally using magic here, folks. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, that's true. Yeah. So in our magical world, no, if we go back to the real world of 1776, when real history started, says Ron Swanson, <laughs> although Matt apparently puts it back to uh, the Reformation. The, yeah. the Reformation. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think that's um, a really good point, Matt. Yes, I think it, it does go back to that. I think that's where the roots, because Locke and Sidney and others came out of that. Yeah. Yeah. And their arguments, it's interesting because if you actually read, most people focus on the second treatise of government by Locke. Most people have never heard of Sidney. But their arguments were very much theological arguments. Mm -hmm. yeah. And yeah. because the argument for the sovereignty of kings was a theological argument. They said, right. well, Adam was the king. And, you know, so it was very much rooted in a theological mm. foundation that was obviously rooted in the Reformation. So that's a good point. To which I believe the politics was weaponized at that point. 
against people of good conscience. But anyhow, mm-hmm. yeah. 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 Well, I was going to ask a question and my sentence structure sort of dissolved into just talking and then <laughs> right. you guys <laughs> commented no, on it. No, we just started but, talking. But, so yeah, there was but, never a question. No, there wasn't. But here's what it is. If you were to think of how you would like to have responded, were you to have the audience of someone like, say, Thomas Paine or even Jefferson? Mm. We didn't have a microphone, but you're living back then. And I realize we could pick a particular year, but let's just say at the height of heightened eagerness to be an independent nation, mm-hmm. what would you tell the colonists if you were writing a tract? Knowing what you know mm. now, not like necessarily historically, but knowing your theological presuppositions now, where you stand, what would you like to preach at the colonists if you could go back and do that? Wow. It's a tough question because it's, it's like the answer is very, you know, when, it, when I was a kid in Sunday school, it's like, how did the Israelites reject God after God, like literally, you know, <laughs> had the, the cloud of, I was going to say the cloud of pillar of fire by night. I was going to say the cloud of the cloud of fire, <laughs> <laughs> with the cloud of fire on day and night, whatever. Yeah. Like, and, and they walked through the red, like, how did they rebel against God? Like what on earth was wrong with them? And I was like, you know what? Good Sunday school teacher would say, don't judge. You probably would have done the same thing. Right. right exactly. And so there is a sense, like what you said, Mike, is like, you don't really know how you would respond to agitation until you're really cornered. And maybe your best self would be like, I'll die a martyr. Or maybe that's not your best self in your mind. I don't know. But right. it is a tough question to answer because it's easy for us to say now, after the fruits of the revolution of the United States winning, right? And now we're sitting as this free country. It all turned out fairly good, I suppose. I can't imagine it would be better under a monarchy still, but whatever. Like, assuming things are better in the world now because of liberalism and democracy, okay, we have the comfort of looking at that. Of course, it's easy to say I would die if I were being attacked by the Redcoats, right? Mm -hmm. It's easy to say that, but would we really? So what would you say, now that you've had a few moments to think as I've been rambling, what would you say if you were a tract writer in the 1770s? So I can answer this question because I think my message... And again, this is knowing what I know now. I think my messaging would be very much the same as it is today. So I talk a lot about nullification. Nullification is effectively using state and local power to undermine overreaching federal authority. So when you have the constitutions being violated, my position is is that any federal act that is not within the constitution is void should not be enforced, and therefore state and local government should endeavor not to offer their support or assistance to anything the federal government's doing that's outside of its bounds. Okay, so that's my messaging today. And nullification was, it's often been talked about as the moderate middle road between outright submission and violent revolution. I would very much preach the same type of thing. I would have been a Dickinson saying, Let's not go as far as to try to be an independent, but let's keep pushing back against the British when they refuse to honor the bargain that was made and and do the things like they did during the Stamp Act and refuse to enforce those laws and and do those things. And maybe that would have worked then or or not. I, I don't know. I do know that it works today because the U.S. government doesn't have the the resources and the personnel to enforce its laws and and implement its programs. Perhaps the British had more control from a physical ability to force. But what happened with the Stamp Act tells me it didn't because they ultimately repealed the Stamp Act because it couldn't enforce it. So I would try to push for that as opposed to an all-out war. And again, this might not have worked then because 
I live in the 20th century, 21st century, where you have cameras and television and all of those things. But you look at the way the civil rights movement played out. It was largely nonviolent. And the actions of the civil rights activists, people like Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, and others, were able to change that system without actually going to war and generally not using a lot of violence. So I, that would kind of be my, my messaging. And it's not much different than what I say today. Matthew, how about you? Yeah, if I was, and I have to think about what I do today and what I have done today in multiple instances, where if I was, like you said, writing a tract out for my fellow colonists, what would I say? I would say, number one, we need to pray for our governing authorities. Even if you have to pray a prayer of malediction against the king, even if you have to pray against the soldiers that he's sending, pray, 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 even at those points that are very much seem hopeless. Speak out. If you are an individual in the colony, speak out as high and as loud as you can against the injustices that are perpetrated against you and your fellow man. And if those footfalls happen to come across your doorstep where you need to defend your family, be ever so willing to do so and keep your muskets close. <laughs> that sounds like it would have been written as a tract. <laughs> it does. And it was much it was a much better spiritual answer than mine. Well, I'm 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 more of a three point Baptist anyway, so <laughs> yeah. Uh, did your points alliterate? I can't remember. I didn't have any references. I'm sorry. I'll I'll do that next time. That would time. be your that would be your uh, your true test of a there you go. You know, Baptist. Actually, you should have started with a joke. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and ended with a poem. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh gosh. Apologies to all of our Baptist friends out there. Gentlemen, I really appreciate you joining me for this. The running dialogue that happens in my head is nothing to what we actually had here. Do you have any final thoughts to share? The one that I had, and I'm glad you said it, to add to my tract if need be, this is not a divisible thing within the church. Some may fight, some may not. And this might go into the future thought of our churches yet to come. The question of whether or not we are a part of certain political ideologies should not be reasons that the church falters or separates other than things of sin, for that matter but that we should still see each other as brothers if one decides not to pick up a gun. That's really good. And I would just add to that and really affirm that, that ultimately, as Christians, our king is Jesus. Our kingdom and our nation, and I'm using air quotes. You can't see my air quotes because there's no video. But these are I love quotes. how you're telling yeah. people listening, they, they can't see you. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. But our nation. Now I've lost my train of thought. But our nation. But our nation is the church. That's where our that's where our first allegiance is. And I think Matthew speaks to that. We have to come together as as a body of Christ and and love each other and support each other. And we are going to differ in our political views. But as Jesus said, there is no Greek, there's no Jew, there's no Democrat, there's no Republican, there's no Libertarian. Yeah, I just took a little bit of a leeway with scripture there. I was about to say. No, that's, it's all good. Yeah. That would be a, a very Jewish way of just sort of adding to it and commenting hey, on it. It's just yes. sort of kind of going, going that way. So I'm going to make one last note before we wrap up here is that when we were discussing this topic in our group chat with the Christians for Liberty hosts, 
we were given some suggested resources that we actually did not talk about. So I'm going to put those in the show notes page for further reading because these are highly come highly recommended by other network hosts of the Christians for Liberty Network. And of course, I'm going to wrap up with letting you know that both Matthew and Mike have shows on the Christians for Liberty Network, the Godarchy podcast. And Matthew does good news, bad news, where you can see him make fun of politicians, make <laughs> jokes and uh, snicker and make and mock me for writing bad jokes for his script. So um, <laughs> in any case, I hope you go and uh, check out their shows as well. But for this episode, Mike, Matt, thanks for joining me. Hey, we should do this again sometime. I think this is a topic that we could not dig a deep enough well on. Yeah, that's very true. I'm down. That's great. Well, we'll see you here again sometime. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.